This is Old News, a podcast where we take the Old Testament and we apply it to youth ministry. Welcome. Open your Bibles. Hello and welcome back to Old News. Tom Elms here and today I'm joined uh, by Matthew Payne. How are you going, Matt? Doing well, thanks, man. That's good. Um, today we're going to be looking at the book of Exodus, but specifically thinking about uh, that second half of the book, the book that we might not, uh, well, more than half, but the book that we might not stray too far into. Uh, a lot of us like to get our, get our head stuck into the first 15 chapters with our youth, but less of us will tend to wander, uh, so pun in there, a little bit further along. Um, but before we jump into that, Matt, I wonder if you could tell me a bit about yourself. Uh, I'm a Christian. I believe in the Lord Jesus. It's probably the most important thing you can know about me. I'm actually studying a, a PhD at the moment in, on uh, historical theology. I'm looking at the uh, bloke of William Perkins from the late Elizabethan period. He's just a uh, late Reformation theologian. I'm very interested in what he has to teach us today as well. And um, I'm also a high school teacher and do that part time as well. I uh, am married to Mandy, and I have uh, three young boys. Yeah, awesome. Uh, so I spend a bunch of time uh, thinking about theology at quite a higher level, but also uh, a lot of time just hanging out with teenagers at a high school. Uh, so kind yep. of two very different forms of, of thinking about knowledge, I guess. Um, yeah, you, you spend a bit of your time, though, thinking about theology and particularly how you can package it uh, for your kind of everyday person. Uh, can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, it's it's probably a similar outcome to what you, you're looking at with uh, this podcast, really. Um, I noticed g- going to Bible college um, and the great privilege it is to learn the many things you learn at Bible college and thinking people in our churches could understand this. They just don't have access to it. Uh, and so um, I run a ministry called Stretch, which is uh, about getting into churches and running a seminar for a couple of hours. Uh, and getting stuck a bit deeper into theological topics and, and, and biblical books, um, more than you can possibly achieve on a Sunday sermon, unless you preach way too long and way too deep. Um, but I think that's really achievable, and uh, the churches I've done it with so far have really enjoyed it. Yeah, great. Uh, well, I think that's a really great thing uh, to be doing, and as we just yeah value so much uh, being able to put the word in people's hands and for them to realize that they can read and grasp uh, grasp it, uh, that they have the same Holy Spirit as any uh, Christian academic does. Uh, but yeah, sweet. Uh, so we're going to be looking at Exodus today. What kind of experience have you had teaching the book of Exodus? A um, whole lot of levels, really. Um, I've done, I've preached a sermon series uh, through the book uh, before, so that's mainly to adults. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, um, I've written a series for a holiday kids club, for a one-day kids club. And we broke the entire book of Exodus, uh, all 40 chapters, into three sections. So basically it was um, the salvation bit, uh, and then the uh, wandering to, uh, the following God to uh, Mount Sinai, and then the message of the tabernacle. And uh, we did those three talks um, aimed at primary school kids. Um, and uh, so somewhere in between, um, when I was high school teaching very early on, uh, we were doing a series in a, a lesson and the students did Mount Sinai and they said, how come God is so angry and so unapproachable? Mm. Uh, 
And I know the Bible has an answer to that, and the answer is the tabernacle. And so I made a scale model of the tabernacle to answer their question, and we did a series on that afterwards. Um, so that was that's, that's another context in which I taught the book uh, and really enjoyed it. Yeah, fantastic. Um, well, how about we jump in and have a think about those things now, um, but specifically thinking about a youth context, um, maybe providing we'll provide a bit of an outline uh, about how we can do this in the term at youth group. So Matt, why do you think uh, we should be excited, or youth ministers and youth leaders should be excited uh, to teach this book in our youth ministry? Well, I think we should be excited to teach the whole book. So the first 15 chapters are how God saves Israel. It's the great redemption uh, activity action of the, the Old Testament. Um, God saves his people through the sea, out of death, uh, towards life, but not to life yet. And that's why the second half is really, really important. Because uh, Israel, from chapter 15 to uh, 18, are traveling through the wilderness to the place where God has uh, directing them to, Mount Sinai, where he met Moses, uh, Mount Horeb, the other word for it. Uh, and then he meets them in chapter 19, and they're no longer a family. Uh, he says, you're a nation now. And he makes them his nation of priests. And then he teaches them about a way to him, a journey which is uh, much, much shorter, but absolutely impossible. It's a journey of about um, 30 meters from the entrance of this tent to the middle room of this tent. And that entrance, that, 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 um, that route, if you like, that 30 meters, is the entire gospel. Uh, it's about priests, it's about sacrifices, it's about the difference between life and death and clean and unclean, uh, and it's about getting back to Eden. Uh, this is really exciting stuff. Uh, it's dense, it's difficult to get to because it doesn't present uh, theology in the way we're used to. It shows you uh, and, and gets you to sort of make a map in your mind of what this the layout of this, this tent is. Um, but the message of it is absolutely foundational to what Jesus did uh, in his cross and resurrection. Yeah, awesome. Well, I think that's a, a really cool intro uh, to a series. And yeah, we'll jump in now and, and start thinking about how we'll teach some specific sections, uh, yeah, sure. some key parts and, and what some, some good application might be. Sweet. So we're going to start our, our first talk uh, by thinking about uh, chapters 16 through to 18. So the journey through Sinai. Naturally, there's a few things that come from this uh, around choosing what Bible reading you're going to do because uh, I, I wouldn't read all all three chapters uh, with, with my youth kids. They might struggle a bit. Um, I think your Sunday congregation would struggle a bit too, yeah. most likely. So <laughs> yeah, that's, um, true, that's fair enough. Um, and then also um, the fact that there's, there's a lot to cover in here. And, and it's okay that in your youth talk, especially if you like my youth leaders and you're restricted time-wise uh, to not cover everything. But we want there's a few key things that we really want to grab in here. Uh, what's going on here, Matt? I think the uh, the place to start really is a couple of chapters before. In, in chapter 14, we just need to recall what they've just witnessed. It's the most extraordinary thing any of them have ever witnessed and more extraordinary than anything I've seen with my own eyes. Um, God parted the waters. They passed through to salvation. Uh, the uh, Egyptian army perished in the water. Uh, they sang a song in chapter 15 about how great a savior and a greater warrior their God is. They've seen him do extraordinary things. And the whole world is going to hear about the God that these Israelites have. 
Um, they've got something to boast about. Uh, it's, it's not them. It's their great God who's their savior. Um, that happens. And now the same God is going to take them to Mount Sinai so they can meet him and worship him. Uh, the next three chapters have to have that context uh, where they've seen extraordinary salvation. Um, the, the idea of chapter 16 to 18 is very simple, really. Um, Israel is on a journey. They need to trust in God providing for them along the way. And they uh, keep struggling to do that, to say the least. Uh, they cry out for water. God provides them water. They cry out for food. God provides them food. They cry out for different food. God gives them different food. And they are just uh, faithless uh, people struggling to trust in this God that they've just met uh, and who has saved them. Uh, so that, that's the basic idea of these three chapters. Um, there's a few passages in there you could choose to, to, to read and, and, and speak on, but all of them would have that, that same sense of uh, the Christian life of persevering in faith. Uh, to where God is guiding us to. Yeah, I think it's uh, an interesting uh, struggle, and I think it's it's probably relevant to all people. Uh, but I find with youth as well, um, it it constantly it, it, this really reminds me of the the classic kind of conversion event where a lot of yeah. youth kids will become a Christian or make a major commitment at some point, and that's largely connected to a big event yep. in their life. Or a, or a big youth event that's occurring, um, and then the memory of that, um, and what, and that memory of what they've of understanding the gospel uh, can fade with time. Yep. Uh, and then suddenly the, you can find yourself. It feels like you're walking through a wilderness, trying to follow God's promises, but it often seems like a really dumb idea. Yeah, and immediately, um, you you no longer when you're not feeling that deep. I guess, impact of the moment, yeah. um, you find it harder or more annoying to live God's way. Yeah. Uh, and naturally for us, obviously, you know, seeing the, the, I guess, the ultimate miracle that we see through the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus and his death for us, um, that as the power of that image fades, we become um, more grumbly. Yeah, and it can be easy to... Um barely paraphrase what the Israelites say. They, they say, can't we go back? To, and and, and um, they had pots of meat and a good time in Egypt, basically, where we were slaves to sin and death. But, you know, it was really good back there. So we should go back there and stop following Jesus now. Um, yeah, we can face exactly that temptation. And youth uh, are at a point in their life where they're um, challenged to go any which way except follow Jesus. Um, so this is a very pointed uh, part of the Bible for for young people as they seek the, the direction of their life, whether they're going to follow uh, the cloud, the pillar of fire, or whether they're going to uh, turn backwards towards sin and death. Yeah, and on top of that, uh, they're not just themselves struggling with having to live uh, God's way instead of choosing to live the way that they would want to live, but they're also being told by the world all the time that yeah. it's done too, right? Yeah. Uh, so it's kind of like there's their voice and their internal monologue. There's those who are struggling alongside them. But then there's also this huge external uh, voice that's blasting in and, and telling them that it's dumb. Contagious grumbling. Yeah. yeah. And it, yeah. it really is contagious like in, yeah. in Exodus. Yeah. You see how quickly it spreads amongst the people and that they've so quickly... It's just one of those classic moments for me in, in, in scripture where we laugh at them and think they're stupid. And at that point, when we think they're stupid, it's when the text is really saying. Yeah, this is. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right. This is actually I, I, I think of my own 
uh, walk by faith and I, I, I see myself in them more and more. Uh, we, we mustn't harden our hearts to this part of the Bible, um, as we're told. Uh, Psalm 95 is a good place to go for exactly that, this application of this, this part. Don't harden your hearts as at Massa, which is part of this section. Um, because those people didn't end up didn't end up making it to the promised land. Mm. Yeah, and there's a um, a helpful connection that you can draw here. Although um, you know, you don't necessarily have to, but you could jump through from here uh, to John six, yeah. uh, when Jesus himself kind of identifies with some manner typology. Uh, yeah, what? How would you think that would be a helpful thing to do? Yeah, I think it'd be great. And uh, if. Uh, and while we're talking about bread and, and, and remembering well as we continue in faith, um, the Lord's Supper is an obvious place to go to for this theme. Uh, mm. We live by uh, continuing and uh, feeding on the promises of God in Christ. Uh, and that's what the Lord's Supper is. Uh, it isn't just remembering. It's renewing our faith, feeding on uh, Christ by faith today uh, so that we would continue walking today. So that's a, that's a great link to make as well, potentially, depending on the context. Yeah, fantastic. I think it's really helpful uh, and some hopefully some helpful places for you uh, to go as you start a little series on Exodus. Okay, and so we come to our second uh, talk. We're this time just focusing on chapter 19, so I'd say probably read the whole thing. Uh, with, a, with our youth group, be a valuable thing to do. Um, but yeah, what's going on here? They've, they've arrived. They're finally at their uh, destination. And um, it's worth noting that they're at Sinai for a pretty long time, uh, for the rest of Exodus, for all of Leviticus, and they leave in numbers. Um, so it's uh, it, the, the narrative slows down a lot here, and we've got mm. a lot of detail. Um, but there's very, very good and important stuff here. Um, this is where Israel becomes a nation. They're not just an oversized family anymore. Uh, God says you are going to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. There's kind of this uh, missionary aspect to it. They, they look outward to the world and they, the world can know the one and true and living God through Israel and the way Israel lives, hopefully. Um, so God covenants with them to, to have that kind of relationship with him. But what strikes me about this chapter, um, even more than that, even though how foundational and crucial that is, is God comes down from heaven and meets human beings here for the first time like this, well, since Genesis 3 when he throws them out of his presence, really. Um, he comes down and this mountain basically explodes with fire and smoke and loud trumpet blasts, and it's absolutely terrifying. Uh, it's hard to picture, and the people are rightly terrified. Um you might, I suspect some teenagers will think this is God having a grumpy day, got out of the wrong side of bed in the morning or something. But it's not. This is the holy God who comes close to sinners. And so you notice as you read the chapter, there's a boundary around the mountain. Anybody touches that mountain, they're going to die. Uh, you better not break through to see the Lord because you'll die. Um, there's kind of these layers, these buffer zones between God uh, in the cloud and the people right at the bottom of the mountain. And you're just struck with by how fierce God's holiness is here. Uh, he's not a, a God who's to be trifled with. And being able to be in relationship with him and come close to him is going to take some real doing, basically. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, I think um, something that's come out a lot when we have looked at prophetic literature mm. uh, has been the judgment of God yeah. and His holiness, these kind of images to wrestle with. Um, but with this holiness, I think this image of, of the mountain is really helpful uh, to see, um, yeah, who he is there, but also to see how fierce uh, he is. And this isn't even them getting to see all of him, right? They're kind no. of just seeing, they're seeing the effect on everything around him yep. rather than just him himself. God, God's um, hiding himself from them and showing them enough that they get the idea. Yeah, which is really for their own protection, right? Yeah, absolutely. So that's a a really helpful image. And really for me, um, and this will come up, I guess, later when we talk about the tabernacle, the starkness of just the the separation that happens now between uh, sinful humans and their creator. Mm. uh, That someone who, um, without sin, could could be so approachable and could walk alongside us. Mm. But now because of our sin, this, this fierce separation is in place and we can't even be in his presence. Um, I also think this this nation concept is really helpful um, for uh, group identity and thinking about ourselves now as, as Christian people yeah. uh, who are now who are God's people uh, trying to um, you know live His way and be His people. We know that Jesus has been the true Israel yep. that these guys needed to be, and now as followers of Jesus, um, that we would live and, and and try and be God's people. That that is a, a definitive thing. Uh, that separates us from the world around us mm. uh, and is a significant separation. Not that we are Israel now, but that the images that are here are helpful for us uh, in thinking about our separation from the world. Yeah, one, one Peter talks about Christians as, uh, in that same way, echoing that language of the kingdom of priests. Mm. Um, and so that's what uh, we should all aim to be in the places we spend our time in the world among people who don't know Jesus. Uh, we have the opportunity to... Uh, look like people who know God and to speak like people who know God. And, and that's the challenge. Yeah, so a great opportunity to get that across to our youth and to uh, hopefully give some, some young teenage boys a pretty cool image of God to play with uh, <laughs> and to think about compared to, I don't know, I, I feel like I'm always battling against this kind of nice God of the New Testament, nasty God of the Old Testament. I think the, the God of the New Testament has a, his, his own amount of judgment uh, being the same person. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's a great opportunity to chat about those things and a, a really important introduction now uh, to what happens next. Cool, so now jumping into uh, what's probably to a lot of people a very well-known but also well-unknown section depending on which part of you read the book of the covenant specifically the ten commandments mm. um we kind of talked about that we'd probably do a reading of the ten commandments themselves and then reference in our talk that there was other stuff going on um but yeah what, what's going on in this section uh 20 to 23 so 20 to 23 really is the law and the uh what we call the ten commandments is the beginning of chapter 20 but then uh we're kind of eyes glaze over as it continues to go on and on in details. Basically, we have chapter 20, which is the Ten Commandments. And then we have a bunch of case studies, case law, um, applying to specific situations. And there's a lot more of this in the book of Leviticus, of course. But God is talking about what it looks like to um, obey him as a nation. They've just become a nation. What's their law? Uh, and so really, this law is answering the question, okay, we're going to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. 
what on earth does that look like? Uh, and the Ten Commandments is the answer to that, and that's uh, what it means to be holy uh, before God. Yeah, so it's a section that people kind of, they've heard this stuff and they, they kind of have heard it just kind of told and they could probably tell you maybe three or four of the Ten Commandments off the top of their head. Yep. Um, why do you think it would be a really significant thing to teach? Um, it would be a significant thing to teach because God still wants his people to live a holy life and he hasn't turned his back on uh, this way of living uh, as a broad pattern of how to live as his people in the world. Uh, and so we're still called to live as, as holy people. And so we should teach that. Um, I also, um, I really appreciate in this section that God cares about uh, individual people and the, the difficulties of real life. Mm. Um, it's like what, what you might call situational ethics in these uh, chapters after the Ten Commandments of what do you do in this situation? What do you do in this situation? Um, and it has a real concern for uh, restitution occurring when uh, a wrong has happened. If you've wronged somebody and caused them great loss, then the offender needs to make restitution. They need to restore what was lost. Uh, it's a different way of living, uh, and it's um, it's very good. Yeah, and I think um, what I really love uh, about the law in general, but what I think really comes out in this section following the, the Ten Commandments, is the concern that God has for the vulnerable. Yes. Uh, he seems to really care about... Um, vulnerable people and so the verses that tend to uh, get a bad uh, track record if they get posted individually online or um, if people grab onto little one little ones and don't think about the context um, such as the stuff that talks about some of the slaves some of the stuff yeah. that talks about uh, women in this section is actually all about ensuring that those people are protected within a society that has the potential to take advantage of them. Yeah. Um, that in their social context, they're at a disadvantage. And so the law is seeking to protect them and ensure uh, that the right thing happens to ensure that they, they don't find themselves without a source of income, that they don't find themselves excluded from a community, uh, that they are protected and cared for. Uh, even and while in our context, it might, it might be difficult for us to see. Yeah, and uh, people live by the leverage they have and... and use it against each other but th this law says don't take advantage of the widow or the fatherless two of the most vulnerable groups in the society um ensure their uh their good fare in life hmm. um that's a wonderful thing and that's going to be very very dif different to a world around that basically lives by um who's strongest who's richest who can get it over other people best yeah, and we see the, the caring about the widow and the orphan is something that then is just continued through the whole Old Testament. It comes up all the time. It came up, yeah. came up in our last episode in Amos, but it's come up in so many different areas. It's often the curse that God puts down on people is that they haven't been doing that. Yeah. And, um, and he, he hates that. Um, yeah, I guess the, the jump that I'm then most likely going to take to Jesus would be uh, the, the golden rule of, of love uh, God and love one another, which is his summary of of these ten, 10 commandments and shows me that what we'll, that they're valid then and they're important now yes. um, they're not the means by which we come to a relationship with god but they're certainly a way in which jesus uh, would ask us to respond uh, to what he's done for us by living living out and uh, we can and see the, here that they were valuable then and that they've been around for for such a long time uh, contextually and the, again it's what's going to mark christians out as a holy people uh this is how uh people will know we're his disciples that we love one another um 
it's the mark of uh, God's people. Cool. And so now that the law has been uh, received, uh, there's a, a, an important moment with the, not just Moses, but also a bunch of uh, elders that are going on. So the covenant ratification, what does that look like? It's basically the, uh, the celebration at the end of the, the, the marriage ceremony. I suppose you could say it's uh, kind of the reception feast. It's um, confirming that the covenant's in effect and this is the relationship we have now. And so it's quite extraordinary. There's, I, don't, I don't know if there's anything else quite like it uh, in the Bible where the elders are invited by God to come partway up the mountain with Moses uh, and they, they get up and they, they set up some uh, pillars to show the uh, 12 tribes are present basically at the bottom of the mountain and the people promise to do everything that God says. Um, and then they go up the mountain, Moses, Aaron uh, and all the elders and they see God. Uh, they don't see him clearly. The Bible's pretty clear that uh, nobody's ever seen God except the Lord Jesus. Uh, not properly anyway, but they basically see, th- it's, it's like a firmament um, that's blue and they kind of see God through it and they're in his presence and they eat and drink there. They have a feast there. Uh, it's just extraordinary, this the closeness of relationship that God has uh, initiated with these people. Uh, and it would be surely greater than witnessing the Exodus, uh, the only thing greater than witnessing the Exodus. Um, and so it's worth, it's worth realizing just how extraordinary an event this is because of what happens next. Uh, the elders all go down the mountain. Uh, they're midway up it. So they go down the mountain to the people and Moses goes further up the mountain into the cloud, disappears from view to meet with God. Uh, more closely uh, to get some plans for the tabernacle Uh, and Moses is up there for 40 days and 40 nights and the people wait below and uh, get up to bad things while they're waiting (laughs) yeah it's a pretty um interesting section how it kind of starts in the middle and and so it's well I was thinking this is just a really great opportunity for a pretty cool model of a youth talk here Mm. uh, in that we start with this covenant ratification and this big feast an exciting moment as the people have experienced God especially the leaders who experience God yep and then two different plot lines occur kind of like in some movies where they'll start in the same place there'll be two different directions that go and those plot lines are horrifically um, contrasting against each other in this one aren't they so moses goes back up the mountain and from 25 to 20 to 31 we have him receiving the plans for the tabernacle that we're going to talk about later Um, but what's important here is that there's you know six chapters or seven chapters of just god explaining the tabernacle what it's going to look like and clearly um, what we can take out of that is is that the it's it's important and each element of it's really important, and God really cares about what He's passing on to them. Yes. And so, while there's this really incredible moment of God explaining to Moses how He's going to make Himself uh, permanently uh, present with His people, uh, occurring on one end, and then immediately at the same time down the mountain, uh, the elders who have just been part of this covenant ratification are. Mm. Uh, their feelings already faded they've forgotten and now the people are demanding a sign a symbol 
uh, and now and so they construct a calf to worship instead. And they uh, treated they well they act just like the nations around them, don't they? They think that the best way to express divinity is through some kind of statue. It makes it local. You can bow down towards it. You can worship it and feed it and that kind of thing. And so they just do what all the other nations do with their god. They call it Yahweh, the God of Israel. Uh, and treat it like one of the idols of the nations, even though the first commandment, the first thing God said to them is, don't do that. Uh, it's an absolute offense to him. Uh, and how quickly they forget. Uh, it only took a month. Yeah, and it's just horrific, right? And, um, and then Moses comes down, he discovers what's going on. Mm. Um, God kind of already knew what was going on, and he, uh, he explains to them, he says to Moses while well, Moses is still with him, doesn't he, what's, what's happening. Um, and it's just an outrage that those people would, would be so quick to forget the first command that they've received uh, as soon as they get down, as soon as they're down and they, they're waiting and they get tired of waiting again, grumbling begins and they want to, they want to be like the nations. We want to be like the people around us. And I think that's something that our youth connect with strongly yep. is this desire to, to be like those around them, to celebrate uh, in the same ways to, to just want to be a similar community. Yep. And if you want to shock youth, you basically talk about how um, it's the marriage ceremony and then you've got um, the the groom goes off and uh, draws up plans for the house they're going to live in together and the bride goes off and has sex with somebody else. That's basically what's going on. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and a, I guess a symbol like that will be used a lot when we think about idolatry. Yep. Um, but yeah, it's really, it's really shocking. Um, but it's more shocking, even, even it's strange to think about. Um, and in such a profound way that people would be so quick to forget their God, that they would marry themselves to a statue, mm. uh, to worship instead of something they can still see. Like it's up on the mountain. They can still see in the, in the distance. They can see Mount Sinai. Yep. They can see the cloud up the top. And the fire of God burning there, it's a, an alarming, striking sight, but they've started taking it for granted, uh, yeah, within weeks. It's, um, it's worth, I, I think it's worth pointing out here, I, I think we all probably struggle of how could these people be so stupid? Um, <laughs> and again, um, I, I, th I think I could fall into that. Um, the reason they did it is because it wasn't stupid. It was actually really wise. Because the common sense of their era said God is expressed in statues. And, um, you know, Moses said something about how that shouldn't be how they do it. But whatever. Common sense says God's worshipped through statues. And so there's something here about um, the common sense of our era, which youth are going to take on board. Um, we need to hear very loudly it's wrong when it contradicts God's word. And it'll lead us into some very, very frightening disobedience. Uh, and that's what happened to Israel. And once again, we have Moses um, or, or you know, having to be that person who intercedes between them. And in, in 32, uh, seeking the favor of God on behalf of the people, um, even though what, what they've done is, is just so horrific. Yeah, Moses acts as quite an extraordinary mediator here. He, 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 and it's, it, it raises a lot of theological questions, like uh, Moses seems to be kind of the... Uh, the person who's got it all together in this, this situation, he's the most perfect Moses he's ever is in any other place in uh, the Bible, as far as I can see. But he reminds God of his um, uh, promises to, to Israel and how uh, destroying Israel and his anger would uh, appear to the nations watching about. 
and would bring God's name into disrepute. And he calls on God to please turn his fierce anger aside and, and even blot Moses out of the book, rather than the book of life, rather than Israel, um, which is an extraordinary thing um, to claim. Uh, and it's pretty obvious how that is about the gospel. Mm. Uh, we have a mediator who did exactly that in Jesus, uh, who intercedes uh, for the Father on our behalf. Yeah, and who, um, but 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 still rebukes our sin, yes. and that's really um, helpful. He still, you know, he intercedes for Israel, and then he goes down and and curses them for what they've done. Yeah, and so I think you can either do this in in one talk where you draw the contrast uh, throughout that talk, and obviously go into a little bit less detail, mm. uh, or you can have the opportunity as well where if, if you you could do this in two talks where you focus. Uh, the first talk on him receiving the instructions for the tabernacle and looking at the length of that and seeing how important that is. Uh, and then the next talk, uh, contrasting that against uh, the different plot line that they all start together, the elders and Moses uh, in the middle of the mountain. And then Moses goes up, uh, the elders go down, and, and that's the same direction that the plot lines go, um, that you can draw that contrast quite effectively. And I think it would be a helpful way uh, of getting that across to youth. Hmm. Cool, and so as we get to the next talk, um, we're going to spend a, a chunk of time on uh, the covenant renewal that occurs here, uh, and that seems to be, or, or is because it just seems to be so important. Yeah, uh, so covenant renewal, we had two uh, smashed tablets with the commandments uh, the first time, and so those are, are re-chiseled. Um, well, chiseled for the first time, the last one's for God's finger, I think. But um, the, the context of this, I think, is quite important. Um, this is a really low point for Israel, mm. where they are just basically cut off. Um, Moses has his own tent where he meets with God for a while, and God considers making a great nation just of Moses to go to the promised land with, <laughs> and Israel just to be destroyed or forgotten about. And, and Moses intercedes, as we were talking about. But it's in that context where you discover how generous God is, uh, because... Um, he passes before Moses and there's this quite extraordinary um, uh, meeting that Moses has where he sees God's back, um, whatever that exactly means, but he gets a kind of glimpse of God, which is very unique. Uh, and he hears God's name in this context. Um, and God says that he's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. This is uh, chapter 34 and the, the first few verses there. Um it talks about how he still won't leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes, but he's also faithful to his promises and he's abounding in love and he's not quick to anger. And these attributes of God are wonderful, important things that um, all of us need to uh, meditate on and think about and have applied to our lives and thinking about how God will be faithful to us. Um, and we also need to hear the, the sternness of God's rebuke to, um, to sin. Yeah, and so largely, um, if you're doing a, a Bible reading, we're looking at largely the first kind of chunk or, of, of Exodus 34. Um, yeah, it, it seems to be a really important moment and is an important moment for God, um, just talking about his identity and who he is, um, which comes up again and again throughout 
throughout the prophets and, mm-hmm. and this phrasing is seen often uh you know jonah in jonah 4 attempts to throw this back in god's face when he's angry at him yeah uh, it's a it's a significant way in which god defines himself and we see this slow to anger and abounding in love come through with his ultimate act of compassion towards us yes uh, that his character while it he appears scary and there is this scary side to god here we see that his compassion for his people ultimately comes out uh, through a graciousness uh, in the Lord Jesus. Uh, and, that... and praise God for the cross at this point where he doesn't leave guilt unpunished and mm. does actually punish. And we're not the ones who are being punished um, for it in this dispute between us and God. Uh, yeah, so praise God for Jesus. It's a, it's a very straightforward way of telling the gospel here. And seems to be the ultimate fulfillment of this character, right? In that he is completely and eternally compassionate and gracious, um, but at the same same time completely deals with sin. Yeah, absolutely. And just to link it back, this is this is not a new theme. This is Exodus 19 again. God wants to meet Israel at Mount Sinai. He comes down as a very fiercely holy God who takes sin very seriously and will punish punish it and will destroy sinners. And yet he wants to draw near and make a way for that to happen. Uh, it's a, it, it, That tension is going to be over and over again um, through, uh, well, the rest of the Old Testament, really, but um, definitely through the book of Exodus. Yeah, fantastic. And so it's great to see this side of, of God now, um, just before we get into our final talk, which will take up the last chunk uh, of the book of Exodus. So now as we get to the last section of the book of Exodus, where it's this big moment uh, that I think we don't always treat as a big moment uh, when the Israelites construct the tabernacle. Um, how, are we, how are we going to talk about this section uh, in a helpful way that explains it well uh, for our youth? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's actually quite repetitive. Uh, so chapters 25 to 31, where we get the tabernacle plans... Uh, It's quite detailed. Um, I was able to make a scale model of it. I know all the problems with my model, which aren't accurate, but that's a different story. Um, But I was struck by, yeah, you can make this thing. The details are there. Um, And then in chapter 35 to 40, you basically have them saying, and they did that, and they did that. And it goes through the whole thing again, except saying this time, the stuff that Moses got shown on the mountain, they made it that way. It's about the only thing that Israel ever did right. Um, so the first list uh, it kind of goes through things in the order of importance, starts with the Ark of the Covenant, and then the second list is just the order that they um, constructed it, um, out of all the valuable materials they plundered from the Egyptians, actually. Uh, that's where they got things from. Um, I think the core thing I'd want to say about the tabernacle is that it's uh, God's dwelling place, means what tabernacle means. God has this tent in the middle of the camp of Israel, like a, a great king, in the middle of his army or his uh, tribe or, or, or what have you. And that that's who God is now to Israel. Um, it's also, it's worth realizing the tabernacle is basically Mount Sinai on legs. Um, the, the buffer zones that are between God and the people, they're at the bottom of the mountain, the middle of the mountain, the top of the mountain with the cloud. That is exactly the layout of the tabernacle. It's Mount Sinai in the form of a tent. And it's going to travel with them to the promised land because God's traveling there to take them into his kingdom, the promised land. 
Um, the um, the theology of it's basically modelled though. So I'll, I'll, I suppose I'll just just explain um, what you'd what you'd see as you walk into the tabernacle and it's laid out there, and you kind of get a feel for the message they're going for. Um, it's a sanctuary, a holy place, um, and the way that expresses itself um, is in what they made it out of. So you start in the courtyard, the outer place. Um, everything's made of bronze. There's a large bronze sacrifice altar, bronze wash basin, bronze furniture, utensils, some silver, no gold. The fabric's all one type of thread. Um, and Israelites can enter, but it's dominated by Levites. Levites are the, the clean tabernacle staff, so they go in the clean courtyard. But it progressively gets more holy as you go further in. So the holy place you go in, um, less bronze here, it's all gold. Gold overlaid everything and uh, the fabrics have embroidery now and there's better fabrics and workmanship and only priests can enter and they're the holy tabernacle staff. But then in the middle you've got the most holy place which is no bronze at all and the silver bases but it's just dominated by this thing called the Ark of the Covenant, this big impressive gold uh, box with, with uh, cherubim on it, um, fancy fabrics and the only person who can go in there is the high priest He's the very holy tabernacle staff member, but he's punching above his weight, really. Um, he's only allowed in once a year and only by timidly tiptoeing in with blood in front of him and throwing incense in front of his eyes so he doesn't see God and die. But you get a, you get a sense immediately of there's this progress of holiness as you, you head towards God and you need mm. to be more holy to get anywhere close to God. Um, that's, that's the main thing that's going on there in terms of just kind of how it works. Um, there's two messages you could preach out of that, um, which are, are really exciting, because um, there's overlapping meanings in the tabernacle. So the first one is it's it's kind of a model of creation. The courtyard is like the inhabitable inhabitable world. It's got people and animals and uh, land, and it's even an ocean in it. The wash basin's called the sea, is what they call it. Um, then you go into the holy place though, and there's incense altar burning, so it's full of cloud. Um, it's a dark bluish room. It's lit by a lamp stand with seven lights. Um, and the seven heavenly bodies that are visible to the naked eye seems to be what that's about at, at one level. It's the lights of Genesis 1. You're in the heavens above. But then there's a curtain with a space behind it that's beyond the physical creation. And there's angels on the, on, on the curtain. And you know you're going into heaven now. God beyond the skies, the, the visible heavens. Um, and it's just about Jesus, isn't it? If we read um, about Jesus' work in, uh, in Hebrews 9, how about we, we should just talk, talk about um, this impossible journey that it is to God because what we've just laid out is absurd that any human being should be anywhere near God if that's the geography that the tabernacle teaches, isn't mm. it? Um, but if we look at Hebrews 9, and remember Moses was told, make the tabernacle exactly like the plan I... I give you and there's a reason for that it's it's a model um, it's a model of the root of Jesus into the heavens uh, to appear before God on our behalf mm. and so you could use something like Hebrews 9 there and 9 11 to 12 have you got yeah yeah you'd like me to read it out yeah yeah 9 11 he was 9 11 to 12 but when Christ came as high priest of the good things that are now already here he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands, that is to say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place 
once for all by his own blood, so obtaining eternal redemption. So it sets up, the tabernacle actually sets up the journey that matters, a journey from earth to heaven, which none of us obviously can undertake. Um, and so it's, it's just waiting for somebody to do it for us. And so there's a really good message there about this unique high priest who ascends uh, by the sacrifice of his own blood um, into the most holy place to appear on our behalf and to, to bring us to God, a journey we could never make. But there's another level you do it as well. And all these, the furniture and the symbols, it, it has multiple levels to it because the tabernacle is also the Garden of Eden, sort of. Um, there's lots of echoes we won't in the text. We won't worry about that. But as the high priest approaches the curtain that separates the holy place from the most holy place, what does he see in front of him on the curtain? Cherubim blocking the way. And it's the cherubim from Genesis chapter 3 at the end, blocking the way to the Garden of Eden. Um, and, and on the one hand, that's really alarming because you know you can't go in. But on the other hand, where's the Garden of Eden? God has made it present among his people, promising them, I want you to come in. We're going to make a way here. And, and so it's kind of this double-edged, uh, the tension we've been talking about all along. God wants to be close uh, and needs to provide the way himself because uh, his holiness is fierce. Uh, and so... It's, it's wonderfully encouraging. I like to say, um, with the tabernacle, God's made a beachhead of new creation. You know, the idea of when an army invades a new land and you set up a, um, your own territory on the enemy beach um, to invade and take over the place. The tabernacle is God coming to earth and to, to invade um, and to renew all things. Mm -hmm. And so there starts to be the seed of that here as well. Um, so that, and if you wanted to do that, you could go to Romans chapter 8 and it talks about creation crying out for redemption. Um, and that sort of uh, cosmic aspect of things. Um, but these are really, really exciting messages and they're embedded in this funny tent that's in the middle of Israel at the end of Exodus. And suddenly you feel really guilty uh, for skipping over this section so much, right? Oh, it's wonderful, um, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's incredible that we can finish uh, and the Exodus does finish by giving us this image that we then get to see fulfilled in Christ yeah. Uh, in a way that is, is so much more profound. And, and going to Hebrews 9, I think, is really valuable in being able to demonstrate that, um, that our series on Exodus would end by ultimately coming back to uh, a, a way of understanding what Christ has done for us. Yeah, uh, and we have actually got, we should mention, that we have got inspired scripture on the tabernacle, and it's it's just Hebrews 8 to 10. Read that and you'll, you'll be a long way there. <laughs> oh, awesome. Um, yeah, so I think that's a really helpful place. Uh, to finish off uh, this little series on the, the second chunk of Exodus, um, but especially because just fantastically coming straight back to the blood of Christ, uh, letting us uh, into the most holy place for good. Uh, so as we finish up, I'll just draw your attention to a couple of resources. Uh, there's a book called Dig Even Deeper uh, by Andrew Sack and Richard Aldrit. Uh, and that book, it's probably a, a pretty accessible uh, way of, of looking and reading and understanding Exodus. So it would be a good recommendation for your youth leaders. Um, but also uh, going to stretchtheology.com. Uh, Matt's going to put up uh, some helpful visuals up there. Yeah, I like teaching with visuals, and I, especially with Exodus, a lot of this stuff 
it's supposed to be lived and seen and so that's why I made a model of the tabernacle and some visuals I've used so I'll, I'll put some stuff up there great so there'll be some resources up there and also uh, you can have a ponder and read of some of the other stuff that's on there um, yeah and then uh, lastly uh, I'm actually about to teach this series uh, in August uh, and, and I've decided this, that I'm probably going to start the series by um, if your youth are like mine and they're forgetful uh, I'm going to start the series by giving a summary of Exodus 1 to 15, and I'm actually going to base that uh, off Moses' song in Exodus 15. Um, so it might be something that's worth trying, uh, especially if you need to set the scene and get that important context that Matt talked about towards the beginning. So finally, I'm going to give Matt the final word. Matt, uh, what is this section of Exodus all about? Well, it's got lots of things it's about, so it's a pretty hard question. But I think I need to keep coming back to uh, we have a wonderful God who made all things, um, who longs to dwell with his people and he saved them so that he could be with them. Uh, And that takes some doing because uh, his holiness just won't uh, tolerate sin at all. And yet he's going to do everything it takes to deal with our sin so we can dwell with him forever. And so that is something that just comes out over and over again in Exodus and Uh, very obviously points us to all that we have uh, to praise God for in what Jesus has done. This has been a presentation from Old News Bible. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can do that at oldnewsbible at gmail.com. All quotes from the Bible were taken from the New International Version 2011 and the music is Amber by Drake Stafford.